You know, you sing a song like, Christ is my cornerstone. And if you really examine your life, you often say, I'm not sure I'm really building my life on that cornerstone. Instead of being intoxicated with Jesus, intoxicated with building every aspect of your life on that idea that we are accepted in Him, loved in Him, we have a little bit of Jesus in our life, but we build our life in other things. We become intoxicated with approval or power or, or security. And today Jesus in this passage, in this parable, is going to address why you and I should be worried. We should be worried about being intoxicated by power. In fact, he does that. He gives us two reasons why we should be worried about our heart being intoxicated by something besides him, but specifically power. He says one of the first reasons you should be worried is because when you're drunk on power, you end up only living for power. It becomes your identity. It's not just your position. It's not just your title. You live for that power. You don't know who you are without that power. And ultimately, it will destroy you. Because as you live for one thing, it'll destroy your health, it'll destroy your marriage, it'll destroy your ability to rest. Here's how Jesus summarizes the parable. The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do with my vineyard? You'll notice Jesus is going to use lots of rhetoric questions today. I'll send my beloved son. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Those who destroy his son. Another rhetoric question. Well, he's going to come and destroy the vine, bre- vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. So Jesus has this parable about a vineyard with lots of rhetoric questions and says, for those who live for power, the, wine dre- the vine dressers, we'll see in a moment, end up being destroyed because of it. So you and I should be worried that the vine dressers don't worry about being drunk on power. Most people who are drunk on power don't worry about it and they end up destroying themselves. Now remember, Jesus is always referencing the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah, there's a passage identical to the main characteristics. It gives another reason why we should be worried about power. When you're drunk on power, you end up losing your power. You will end up, somebody will replace you one day. Somebody will be better than you. Somebody will have overcome you. Somebody have an invention that overshadows you. You will eventually lose your power. It's temporary. And and what happens is, when you mishandle power, it doesn't just affect you, it ends up hurting the people around you, in your department, in your marriage, or in your family. And that's what Isaiah tells us. It's a powerful little parable in the the Old Testament. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He worked really hard to make it grow. He dug it up, he cleared out the stones, he planted it with the choicest vine. He wanted this to be the best vineyard. He built a tower in its midst so he could watch over it. Look at the rhetoric questions. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I didn't do? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? Rhetoric questions, story of a vineyard from Isaiah. What happens next? And now, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I'm going to have to take away the hedge. It's protection. It's going to have to be burned down, break down its wall, it's going to be trampled down, and it shall not be pruned or dug. So here, rhetoric question, story of a vineyard, that God really wanted to produce the best kind of fruit, but ultimately didn't, and so he had to allow it to be devastated in order to start a new vineyard. 
sort of get your mind into the mindset of those days. Let me take you on a little tour real quick of what a biblical vineyard would look like during Jesus' time. Number one, you'll notice that uh, great celebration. There's terrace gardens up on the hills. The area here where the, the grapes are being formed, you see people harvesting them. You see one of the foremen up in the watchtower. You see people stomping on the grapes as they're singing off in hallelujah, thanking God for being the, the, the giver of the harvest. If you visit a vineyard in biblical times, you would notice it was often on a hill because of the topography of Israel. They would take out the stones in this very unproductive rocky land and terrace it into gardens to make vineyards that rolled along the gardens of each of the hills. They took that which was unproductive and made it productive. That which was not beautiful and made it beautiful. Another thing about a vineyard is they often had a watchtower. Sometimes they were 10 feet tall, sometimes up to 50 feet tall. These are the folks who have been entrusted with caring for the vineyard could look down and they could, hey, we got some vines falling over here. We got some foxes over there. Go take care of the foxes. Real tall ones. They could see the Philistines coming in advance. Everybody grab your, set down your gardening tools and pick up your, your swords. We've got to protect our vineyard from the Philistines. So again, everything was designed in here in such a way to protect the vineyard. And then once the crop came after all those months or all those years of preparation, the grapes would be placed, people would come and they would stomp on as they sang together and the, the grape juice turned into wine would overflow from one of the bins into another one. And this was the process and the care designed for making grape juice and wine. It's into that context Jesus is going to speak with Isaiah in the back of your head and with these images in the back of your head. Jesus is going to say the problem with being drunk on power is that you become proud. More than that, you become proud of the very things you should be ashamed of. How can that be? Like, how can we not only be proud, but we become proud of the very things we should be ashamed of? Well, think about the person in your department. Maybe you had a boss who was a real credit hog. And somehow he or she had the ability to take your ideas and take credit for it. And not only were they not ashamed of that fact, they were proud of it. They thought they were wheeling and dealing and fooling everybody. But were they? No. Maybe they fooled a few people a few of the time. But most people realize you had a, a credit hog working for you. And they thought by taking credit from others, they would keep their power. But instead, they're losing respect. Your son's soccer team. Your daughter's soccer team. You got that one top score, and they're so proud of their, their top goals, right? But everybody knows they're a ball hog. Everybody knows that they lose the ball more than they score because they should have passed. Everyone knows if they had passed even half the time, the whole team would have scored more. But they're so obsessed with their own power of being the top scorer, it's detrimental to the team. And they're proud of the very thing they should be ashamed of. Now, some people get into leadership because they want to serve others. And you can tell the difference between those who are insecure and are drunk on power. You ever had an HOA president like that? You got a few who are like are really there to serve. And other people are like, well, this is their little power. So that they can tell people what to do and, and make a big deal about everything. How about your parents? Aren't you thinking about when somebody's going to be the executor of your will, as you think about your kids, aren't you thinking about the one that's not going to be drunk on power? Who can actually be fair? And just? Or how about the, uh, the mother who calls the daughter and says, Hey honey, I just want you to know I was just talking to your sister. And you know, your sister lives across uh, country. And she was just saying she's really angry at you right now. Angry? What for? Well, because of what you said last Thanksgiving. 
What did I say last Thanksgiving? I'm not sure exactly what it was. She's just mad about it. Well, I can't even remember what it is. Don't worry, I'll take care of it. Call sister back up. Hey, I was talking to your sister. I told her you were really angry. Really? Did you tell her about what she said? Yeah, she doesn't even remember what, what she said. She doesn't remember. I know, I couldn't believe it either. She couldn't even remember what she said to you. That's just un- unbelievable. And here's somebody who's triangulating, manipulating and gossiping because they like the power it gives them in the family to feel like they're connected to people when they actually should be ashamed of the fact that they're causing division rather than solving division. So this is what Jesus is getting at, this idea that in so many different flavors we get drunk on power. And here's what he says in the parable. Then he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard. That's Israel. Israel's a vineyard, based on what Isaiah told us. He leased it to vine dressers. Those are the leaders, the spiritual leaders of Israel. So we have God, the man, Israel, the vineyard, the leaders, spiritual leaders who are designed to produce fruit in Israel. And, and that man went to a far off country for a long time. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers. And they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers didn't give the fruit. They beat the servant and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent another servant. They beat him also, treated him shamefully, sent him away empty handed. And again, he sent a third and they wounded also him and cast him aside. So the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I know I'll send my beloved son. So here are these vine dressers who got this job opportunity from the owner of the vineyard. And they get so drunk on power, they kill off the owner's servants. And ultimately, they have to decide how they're going to respond to the owner's son. So with that, we're going to relook through this passage real slowly. And we're going to look at five side effects to being drunk on power. In hopes that we won't do what the leaders did. Remember, this, the whole context here is Jesus speaking to the chief priests, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees, the spiritual leaders. The, they're the vine dressers he's speaking to. And they don't recognize God's work around him. They just criticize the people for, for singing Hosanna, Hosanna and recognizing Jesus. He just cleared out the money changers, which were the leaders, saying you don't get God's kingdom. You don't represent God's kingdom and God's work because you're all about your own power and your own might. And it's into that we see five side effects of being drunk on power. Number one, dissatisfaction. You become unsatisfied or not satisfied with your role as vine dresser. Because here we have the owner, a certain man, who owns the vineyard, invested in the vineyard, made the deal to get this property. And he leased it. It's leased. They don't own it. He leased it to the vine dressers. And you've got to imagine, when they first got this job, they are ecstatic. We got the lease! Our contract went through. We got a heck of a deal. Do you remember when you got your first job? Your first big breakthrough? Your first big promotion? And you were so grateful for the opportunity. I'm going to make this much for doing that. Wow, I've made it. And then about six months goes by. They're not paying me enough around here. Nobody respects me for what I've done. I deserve more. I'm not really sure that the, the, the people understand what I'm qualified to do. I'm just a vine dresser. I could run this place better than everybody else. And that sense of dissatisfaction, which sometimes motivates ambition and good problem solving, but sometimes that, that inability to be satisfied with the role God's placed you in can be what very much sets you up to be drunk on power. And you said more and more and more and more. But what you don't realize is that your heart is a bottomless pit that temporal things will never fill up. And if you think it's going to be filled up 
by having another role or another role, you'll just get to another role and you'll do the same thing. It's not enough. It's not enough. And so the first side effect of, of being drunk on power is just dissatisfaction with the role God's given you, the, the, the place in life God has you right now. Which leads to the second symptom, which is entitlement. God owes me for what I've done. These vine dressers who, who've been preparing the vineyard that the owner has made, not only do they think, I'm not satisfied as a vine dresser, they feel entitled to the grapes that they produced, leasing the owner's vineyard. Now, at vintage time, he, the owner, sent a servant to the vine dressers. All right, it's vintage time, just like we talked about. I want to celebrate the great work you've done. And I would like, the servant says, just some of the fruit of my vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him. Set him away empty-handed. We're not going to give you some of our vineyard. Well, it's not your vineyard. It's leased to you. But no, 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 no. And this is what happens with entitlement. We begin to think God owes me for what I have done. And this is particularly symptomatic of Christians. If you've done wrong things, it's hard to, to, to leverage yourself against God. But if you're a good, moral, upstanding person, you start to think God owes you. Well, I felt that way. How often do I think God owes me a freer life? God owes me an easier life. God owes me a more... Com- Actually, I'm a pastor for crying out loud. I've obeyed for crying out loud. I read the Bible for crying out loud. And that sense of entitlement is you're drunk on your own good works and you think that you can use those good works to leverage God. He owes you. You're not just a vine dresser there to serve his larger purpose, even if it's a challenge and it means you're going to be uncomfortable. God's here to serve you. You're drunk on power. I had a friend attending Horizon several years ago I was chatting with, and, and he was at a point in his career, he was doing incredibly well. He had a kind of an envious resume, great territory, great title, but he was really angry at God. And I said, what's going on? He says, you know what? I just thought at this stage of my life I'd have a bigger territory and a bigger title. So well, it's understandable, you know. He's like, no, it's more than that. It's just this constant nagging in me that I feel like God owes me for how hard I've worked. God owes me for how strategic I've been. God owes me for, for how I've tried to pursue him and I'm trying to do good things. I'm angry at God because he hasn't granted me what I think I deserve. I had another friend who lives in a out west gated community area and I went to visit him and he said uh, hey just be careful when you come in just be exceptionally quiet don't even talk as you're coming in the driveway why it's because of the neighbors like you live in a gated community how bad can a neighborhood be he's like oh it's bad I'm like what do you mean he's like yeah they're all ex-ceos what are you talking about of like fortune 500 companies and they used to have power people used to care what they had to say they used to be able to say things that people did it. Now they're retired. And they got retired early because they had all these golden parachutes. And now they're crabby. Because no one cares what they have to say. <laughs> Their spouse nags them all the time. And so the only power they can do is to occasionally call the police and say, Ah, there's some hooligans coming in here. And they actually said hi to one another. Here's people who their whole life were intoxicated by power. They lost their power in retirement, getting everything they said they wanted. And now they don't know who they are. Except to be crabby and feel entitled to push other people around. So entitlement. The third symptom is escalation. And this is so true. We escalate. 
Oh my goodness. When you are obsessed with power or people's approval, fill in your idol here if it's not power. Control, money, security. You can rationalize any behavior if it keeps your power, keeps you in relationship with your daughters. You can rationalize any behavior if it makes you feel more secure. That's exactly what happens in the parable. Begins with the word again. Remember, they already sent one servant and they beat him. So again, he sends a second servant. And look how things escalate. This time they beat him and treat him shamefully. Which could be, in the Old Testament, they shaved a guy's beard in half. So he came back to his master with half a beard. It was a sign of shame. We don't know what the shamefulness is here, but it's escalated. So he sends a third servant. The third servant comes and they have escalated. Now they've wounded him. They didn't just beat him. They wounded him. He must be bleeding. And they cast him out of here. And they're just rash. This is, hey, it's okay. We got to do this to keep our power. We got to do this to keep our fruit. If we don't beat him, if we don't teach him a lesson, we're going to have to give up something that's ours. And, and because they don't want to give up something that's theirs, the escalation from beating to treating shamefully to wounding to casting out, it just keeps going up. What is it that you might be rationalizing? Allowing fear to increasingly take over parts of your life, but you've got to be fearful because if you don't plan for it, who's going to plan for it? Your anger, you've allowed your anger to get out of control. And each time you justify it, you know, Jesus got angry twice in the Bible, and so every time you get angry once a day, you, you're Jesus, you're Jesus, you know, righteous indignation. Lying. Manipulating. You keep telling yourself, yeah, 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 the means isn't particularly appropriate, but, but, it, but it justifies the end because I want to keep my power because I do so many good things for people around here. Justifying your own compromises. I'm amazed at how the human brain can rationalize anything. <laughs> I had a good friend of mine, my best friend at my wedding, his name's Jim, and uh, out of high school he went into the army. And one thing that drove him crazy is that he was, we'd get into bed about, you know, 12 or 1, and at the very end of the barracks, he was the end of the hall, was his barracks room. Well, all of his buddies would be out to 2 or 3 in the morning just getting drunk as a skunk, and they would come in as loud and as obnoxious as possible and wake him up at 2 and 3 in the morning. And they could never find the right doorknob, you know. Oh, my door! Who took my doorknob? Who took And just loud and obnoxious and wake him up. It drove him crazy. Well, he felt particularly morally justified that they were waking him up and they were getting drunk and, and, and he shouldn't have to put up with this. So, because his room was at the end of the hallway, he left the lights off and he opened his door. So it just looked like a dark cavern back there. And he'd wait. And at two in the morning, his buddies from the barracks would come in. Oh, it's good to see you. I'm home. And he sat in the dark with a slingshot. And he had gone out to the... Uh, <laughs> to the gravel pit and he had a, a pail full of gravel and he'd pick up one of these little gravel rocks and as his friends, his comrades <laughs> came in I was going to pull! I've been shot! I've been shot! Somebody shot me! And Jim is having a great time laughing and, and, and a month into this like all the guys in his barracks are like what's going on? They all got welts on different parts of their body and they're trying to figure out what's going on. Eller! Do you have any on your body? Not yet. You have no idea that's, you know, what's going on? No idea, man. This is really a puzzler. Really a puzzler. One day uh, they had a room inspection, so the sergeant comes into his barracks. Eller, inspection of the room. Room's relatively in good order. Looks under the, the bed. Eller, what's with the uh, 
pail of gravel. Yes, sir. Why do you have a pail of gravel under your bed, Eller? I'm a rock collector, sir. <laughs> Looks like gravel. They're all different, sir. Get rid of the gravel. And so here's somebody who's literally shooting his friends, shooting fellow workers with a slingshot at night, but he felt justified by it. But how often do you and I do that? Well, of course I can treat them that way because of what they've done or didn't do or because their, their worldview is different from mine. And we rationalize our compromises. My friend Mark Whitaker was that way. Maybe you saw the movie The Informant with Matt Damon who played my friend Mark. Mark was part of the largest price-fixing scheme in world history. And he just said, we just got drunk on the power of that. But I also got incredibly stressed. It was destroying me, keeping track of the secrets of trying to price-fix this thing. It affected all products at all times. I came home and my wife realized, she goes, what is going on with you? And I, and I finally told her that I was involved in this. Her name's Ginger. She's a friend of mine too. And Ginger said, you're going to go to the FBI and turn yourself in or I'm going to turn you in. She said, but I'm going to walk by your side on this. And she did. He turned himself into the FBI, and they're like, you know, not a lot of people walk in and say, I'm part of the largest price-fixing scheme in, in world history. So they turned him into an informant, and he was the longest-running informant for the um, FBI who was not trained ever, which caused all kinds of, you know, uh, psychological damage to him. Well, he got to the end, and because of the work he'd done with the FBI, they were going to give him a, a deal where he only had to spend a few years in prison. But he still was just so like, I'm not going to spend any time in prison! And so he rejected the plea deal against his lawyer's advice and against his family's advice. So instead of getting the plea deal, he ended up with 10 years in prison. And his wife, and they're married, happily married today, came and visited with him and the family every day with the kids during those 10 years. One of the few people who stayed married. And he said it was during those 10 years he came to find Jesus. He met Chuck Colson and others who, who led him to understand his life of power had destroyed him and destroyed the things around him. I said, why do you think God put you in prison for 10 years when you could have accepted the three-year deal? He said, I'm just, I was just so arrogant and proud. He said, what I know now is that I needed 10 years to get humble. He's like, nine wouldn't have done it. I needed all 10 years in prison to get humble. And now he spends his time traveling around the United States telling people his story and inviting people to build their life not on power or prestige or money or titles or all the things he had, but instead to build it on Jesus. So escalation, escalation. Well, we move from escalation to our next one, which is objectification. This is where I use people and God to get what I really want. Oh, I say I'm a Christian. I say I love God, but I just really use God to get what I really want. Good health, obedient children, good marriage, fill in the blank. And notice it happens directly out of the passage here. The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? Here's that rhetoric question from Isaiah. I know it. I'll send my beloved son. A real specific phrase, by the way, used of, of Abraham when he brought his beloved son up to be sacrificed. I think of John 3.16 as well. For God so loved the world, he, he sent his only begotten son. This, this beloved son idea is in here. Probably, the owner says, they will respect him. So he's a little realistic, it's probably, it's not for sure, when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, what did they do? It says, they reasoned among themselves. They think about this. Many commentators believe that the reasoning they do is they think, well, if the son is here, the father's probably died, he's come to sort of put his dad's um, will in order. 
So since dad's dead and the son is here, if we kill him, no one will have rights to the vineyard but us and we'll finally get what we want. So as they're reasoning with each other on this, notice again, the father sees the son as a beloved son. How do the vine dressers see them? They reason among themselves, this is the heir. They just see him as an object. The heir, the source of the money. And if we could kill off the one thing that's keeping us from getting what we really want, the heir, we can get what we really want, which is what? The inheritance. Let us kill him that the, and here it is, inheritance may be ours. So, with that as their justification, they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now remember, this whole story Jesus is telling is historical. God gave Israel to the spiritual leaders. He sent servants, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and the people rejected God's prophets. Threw Jeremiah down in a big puddle of mud in a well. They put him in stocks. They killed off the prophets. This is the history of Israel. Stephen gives a powerful speech right before he's martyred saying exactly that. So the people who are listening, they know exactly who they are in the story because they're going to be pretty offended in a second. He says, you use God to get what you really want, which is power and money and wealth. You're not producing spiritual fruit in Israel. And God's going to take Israel away from your leaders because of how you've mishandled it. What do you really want? Like if I gave you a choice today between a deep relationship with God but an uncomfortable life or a comfortable life and a shallow relationship with God, which would you choose? Honestly? Honestly. Right? That's how you can find what you really want. Hey, I will take half the number in my bank account, half the number in my salary, if it allowed me to have a deeper relationship with God, or I really want to know God. If I get the obedient kids, that's icing on the cake. If I get the great marriage, I hope I have that, it's icing on the cake. If I have good health, I want good health. But you know what? God's not some vending machine that's that I can justify, look how good I've been, you owe me good health, you owe me good circumstances. When you objectify God, you turn him into a giant vending machine to owe you what you think he owes you, which leads to pretense. And that's our last side effect of being drunk on power. You manufacture, manufacture a persona in order to get what you really want, to manipulate circumstances, to get more security, to get more control, to get more approval, to get more power. See, the chief priests get done listening to this sermon, or the parable, and the scribes, that very hour, they sought to lay hands on him. (laughs) So that's their application. They're actually going to fulfill what Jesus said. So at that moment, Jesus tells a story about people who kill the son of the owner, and they go, huh, we should do that. (laughs) So that very hour, they sought to do it. But they feared the people. They feared the people would take away their power. They feared the people would not respond. So, they knew that the parable was spoken against them. It wasn't subtle. They knew exactly who the characters were. So they watched him. And they spent spies who pretended to be righteous. What a job description. Can you imagine the ZipRecruiter ad? Uh, We're looking for spies to spy on God 
who can pretend to be righteous. Hey, tell me a little about yourself. I am very good at pretending to be righteous, and I am really good at fooling God. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine? Like, like, what a tough job description. Like, your job is to fool God. And yet, how often do we do that? We, we, we pray, oh God, I really, really, really love you. And we say just all the time we pray. And we use God's name like 12 times. We pray, God, we just want you to just be here right now. And God, you know. And it's not like the real you. It's sort of this persona you. And that's what's happening here. Is they're pretending to be righteous. But their real motivation is it's in order to deliver him to, here it is, the power and authority of the governor. How many people would you say know the real you? Or in making people happy? Or in keeping your power prestige? Are you always double-minded? The version you are and the version you pretend to be. Now we all do that a little bit with people, right? We, we try to be happier than we really are because we're trying to be professional. But is there anyone who really knows who you really are? Does God in your prayers hear where you really at? Are you wrestling and confessing your own brokenness, your own idols, your own obsession with things besides Him? Are you able to repent that you've been drunk on power or drunk on approval or drunk on control? Or are you pretending to be righteous? See, one of the reasons... Jesus dies on the cross. It's not because of a list of bad things we do. He's dying on the cross because we have idols in our life. He's dying because you and I have switched God for security. And he's dying because you replace God with security. You replace God with power. You replace God with money. You replace God with fear of the future. And you're going to control the future. It's on the cross. Jesus dies because you and I want to be our own God. That's why he's dying. Because we're drunk thinking we could run the universe better than him. Drunk knowing we could run our lives better than he is. And that's why he's dying for us. To help sober us up. To see the consequences of our own intoxication with a self. So what's the solution? Well, I left out a couple of verses, which is the solution. What do drunk people need to do? Well, what do drunk people always do? You fall on your face when you're drunk. And that's Jesus' application. If you want to get out of the drunkenness or intoxication you have with other idols, drunk people need to fall on their faces. Jesus says, whoever falls on that stone will be broken. To fall before God on the stone, he is the cornerstone that's been rejected. To fall on Jesus and say, oh Jesus, you died because I'm obsessed with something, a good thing probably, that's not you. And we fall on the stone of Jesus and when we fall in a contrite, humble way, God draws near to us in our humility and lifts us up. But God says, if you don't fall on your face before me on the stone, then instead the stone will fall on you and grind you to powder. You're going to be humble one way or another. You can either fall on your face and admit you've been intoxicated by something besides me, or you can let me fall on you. And humble you for replacing me with something else. It's your choice. Here's how he says it. Therefore, the owner of the vineyard, what's he going to do to them? He's going to come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it and said, certainly not, he looked at them. What? Don't you remember the scriptures? 
What is written? It says the stone the builders rejected. You're going to reject what God sent. That's me. You're doing it right now. And it's going to become the chief cornerstone. That which is rejected will be the cornerstone for those who want to build their life and align their life with who I am and what I've done. For whoever falls on that stone will be broken. And God wants you broken. But on whoever it falls will grind him to power. I had one of those moments this week, just a profound time. I mentioned last couple of weeks I'm going in to see a counselor for PTSD because of the um, just the implications of uh, special needs and things like that. And so I'm, I have my first meeting tomorrow if you want to pray for me. I'm just really um, struck by the amount of panic and fear that has kind of taken control of my life. And so I've been doing a lot of praise and worship. So we've got a piano in our house. And so we go to the piano and I don't play uh, well or sing well. So I'm, I'm listening to my phone, listening to some praise and worship music and just... Listen to beautiful, what a, Jesus, what a beautiful name. And I'm reading this from Psalms 118, actually, this passage came up. And just having a great time with God this week. But just feeling like he's convicting me. A lot of the fear is related to circumstances, which I think we've got a good support system on. But there's something broken in me. And I'm like, yeah, trying to control the future, God. All the fear that's come with that and the panic that's come with that. So I asked Beth to come over, and she actually does play the piano. So she was leading. We were singing some worship music together. And I just felt God's spirit coming over me. And I just began to sob. Actually, I did fall on my face on the piano as Beth was playing and and just saying, God, sorry for thinking I could control the future, that I could plan or strategize things that are well beyond my expertise, Father. I I put myself in the place of you. And I just repent. And I surrender. And and the the way in which God is is just moving in my heart and breaking fear and breaking panic and and realigning me to who he is as the rejected stone. It was just a powerful time at the piano. It's interesting that, you know, of all the things God's been doing pretty amazing in the last few months, it's like the things I've worked so hard on haven't worked real well and the things that I've surrendered have actually done incredibly well. You think I'd learn that lesson? Reminded me when Beth and I, for our 15 year anniversary, we went to Italy. While we were there, we got to hear the story of this piece of marble that had been rejected. It was a piece of marble that they had tried to craft into several things, and all of these expert sculptures had rejected it. It's a piece of junk, can't make anything out of it. A few times they tried to chisel some things, and something broke off. It was worthless. Well, they had this a young apprentice who didn't have enough experience to be a sculptor yet. His name was Mike. And they gave it to Mike. Mike, you know, wasn't qualified. They gave him this rejected piece of marble and said, Son, we'll see if he can do with this, knowing that no one could do anything with this. Well, Mike took this piece of rejected stone and he wanted to carve it into something memorable, and so he did. He carved it and carved it and carved it, and it became what you and I know today as Michelangelo's David. One of the most beautiful pieces of sculpture carved out of a rejected piece of stone. When you build yourself on the rejected stone of Jesus, he's going to chisel at you. He's going to chisel pieces off you that are like, oh, that's painful. Oh, I need that. What are you doing here? But as God chisels and as God forms, if you will fall on the grace of God, fall on him to be the one you're intoxicated with, that you're building your life on, he will form you, as it says in Romans, he will conform you into the image of Christ. He's trying to do a lot more than get you to heaven. He wants to conform you 
into what the best version of you would look like when you're rested on the cornerstone of his son. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the way you work. Thank you for the way you are just radically committed to our freedom, that you will not allow us to continue on in bondage, but your Holy Spirit ruthlessly wants to get us from the enslavement of ourselves. And so, Father, we confess as a people that we are addicted to self in all of its many forms, and we want to be addicted to you. Bring freedom, bring conviction, bring repentance to each one of us. In Jesus' name, everyone said, Amen. Thanks for being here today.